blessing it is to have God's Word, to be able to sit under the authority of God's Word. As you know, if you have been uh, attending for a while, I have been in the book of James for quite some time. It's, it's a long, slow walk uh, through this epistle, and I trust it's been a blessing to you. It has been to me. Uh, James kind of puts a capstone on this epistle in spending the last section of the last chapter and talking to us about prayer. And because of his emphasis and the, the fact that I think we need to think about prayer and we certainly need to pray, um, we've kind of slowed down and circled around this text a little uh, several times. Um, this will be the last sermon on that and, and Lord willing, just one more sermon before we uh, close this book as far as uh, our journey through it on Sunday mornings when I, when I preach. Um, James has showed us here that prayer is the natural response to all the changes we face. No matter what's going on in our life, we should pray about it. He says, if you're happy, uh, sing songs of praise. If you're sad and discouraged, pray about that. If, if you're so sick that you're stuck in bed and, and discouraged and depressed on top of that, call for the elders and ask the elders to come and pray over you. Because prayer is, is such a vital part of the Christian life that, that, we should, that we should really respond to everything with prayer. And this morning, um, we want to look a little closer at this idea of confession. I said, I shared with you in the, the email that I sent out last evening about prayer and the fact that, that we, we kind of use the acronym ACTS, uh, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. I know many of you are familiar with that and, and try to use that and to guide your own prayers. Confession is an important part of our prayers. And so I want to look a little closer at that. Um, primarily, we're going to be out in uh, verse 16 is our text. We'll, we'll read um, the, the whole section there from 13 to 18. I, I apologize. I, I did a last-minute change in the title of my sermon um, and now title it The Importance of Confession. Um, so you can make that correction on your notes if you so desire. Um, but I want us to look at this text under three headings. The definition of confession, the results of confession, and then finally, in the second half of that verse, an imperative and an encouragement. So before we read the text, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and merciful God, we are a needy people. We need your word, and Lord, we want to sit under its authority. We, we do not ever desire to sit over it as authorities over your word. But we want to understand what it says, and we want to do it. Lord, we, we want to love your law as the psalmist invites us to. And Lord, we sit under its authority today. Give us grace and make us eager hearers, and as has already been prayed, make us doers of the word, as James has instructed us earlier. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. James 5, beginning with verse 13. Is any among you, anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let us read verse 16 once more. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us this morning, here and now, in his holy and inerrant word. As we look at this text, we first of all want to define and understand what is confession. Now, you may be asking if, a child, if we are God's children, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been forgiven of our sins, and that is right, and that is scriptural. So why then do we need to keep confessing? We even have a section of our worship service titled Confession. Why is that? Well, perhaps that's not something you wrestle with, but if you are new to our assembly or visiting this morning, you may wonder these things. The word here used in verse 16 means to agree with. It's used throughout the New Testament. Um, there it means to give verbal agreement to God's greatness or to agree with what God says about sins. And, and that second meaning is certainly the context in which James is using this word confess, confessing our sins to one another. Simply put, we confess because we sin. Now we have to slow down and think a little bit because we are followers of Christ. We have been forgiven of our sins. If you are God's child this morning, I'm speaking to you. And I want you to understand what James is saying and why we need to confess. Because first of all, we have to recognize that when one comes to Christ and repents of their sins and turns from them and seeks to be a follower of Christ and receives and rests on Christ alone for salvation, there is a change in their life. Now, if you came to the Lord Jesus as a child and, and maybe you, you didn't live a life of, of great sin, uh, and that's kind of my testimony. I had opportunity to share about that a few weeks ago at the men's lunch. I, by God's grace, didn't, didn't go out and sow a lot of wild oats, as, as some would say. But yet, I knew that I was a sinner. And as I grew in my faith, even as an adult, I recognized how great a sinner I was and continue to be because I continue to break God's law. But 2 Corinthians 5.17 is true that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. There is and should be a remarkable change in the life of one who has trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Those who have trusted in Christ have agreed with the Lord. They have agreed that they are sinners. They have agreed that they cannot save themselves. And so therefore, they come to Christ in faith, which is a gift of God. And, and by this transaction, this glorious exchange where our sins are exchanged for Christ's righteousness, we are adopted as sons or daughters of God. We are forgiven of our sins. And we no longer face the penalty of our sins that we have been reading about and thinking about as we've gone through the Heidelberg Catechism there. 
But not only is the penalty of sin paid for, but the power of sin is broken in the life of a believer. Romans 6, 6 tells us that our old selves were crucified with him and that we are no longer enslaved to sin. I think that too many times we, we get so discouraged by our sin, we forget that the power of sin really has been broken. So we no longer face the penalty of sin, but we also enjoy the benefit of the power of sin being broken in our life. We now, as believers in Christ, have the opportunity and the ability to obey Christ's command. We do not do that perfectly. And we still are called to battle against sin. Sin is still present in our lives. We, even though we love the Lord Jesus and want to follow his commands, we wrestle with sin. The, the Apostle Paul described that in Romans 7 where he says, The good that I would do, I do not do. There is something that lies within me. And he, in the next chapter, calls us in verse uh, chapter 8, verse 13, he calls us to, to mortify sin, to put sin to death in our lives. As, as the great Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you, pointing to this text. Galatians 5 shows us the, the battle between the flesh and the spirit. It says that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And so we battle the presence of sin in our lives. And that is just a little snapshot of what it means to be a believer in Christ, to have your sins forgiven, that you no longer face the penalty of sin, or deal with the power, the overpowering power of sin in your life, yet you still deal with the presence of sin in your life. That is why we confess, we agree with God that sin is still present in our hearts. James has already, in, in previous verses in this epistle, helped us to see that our actions, the actions of sin, flow from the desires that are within our heart. And even those desires are sin. So we confess because we sin. We sin in ways that are, that are seen and known, sometimes publicly, often privately. The psalmist helps us see that, that sometimes... And, and we have to recognize, if we have a clear understanding of sin, that we sin in ways we don't even know. And sometimes, by God's grace, we are shown that. But he says in, in Psalm 19, cleanse thou me from secret faults. And, and that's an appropriate confession, to confess sins that we, we know, that we commit, and, and desires that we have that are disordered and sinful. And so we pray that God would cleanse us, and we know that his mercy is even for those things. As a quick aside, we, in, in, in line with, as we think about confession, um, we don't have to publicly confess every sin. Those sins that are public should be confessed publicly. Sins that are private should be confessed privately. Personal sins should be confessed personally. Sins within the thought life generally should be confessed to God alone. But we need forgiveness. Therefore, we confess. This is something that, that the German reformer Martin Luther knew well. We're in just a few weeks, we'll celebrate Reformation Day. 
uh, October 31st, and, and there's a lot of significant events about the Reformation that we could point to, but, but historians are, like to point to that date because that was the day in 1517 that, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 objections, his 95 thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And he, he says, you know, in, he, he says, these are my objections with practices within the church. And a lot of that revolved around repentance and, and the habits that had developed in that day and the, the errors that had crept into the church over, over a long period of time. And, but in the very first one, and, and you've heard me say this before, but in the, the top of that list, number one on that list, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And Luther is here saying what Scripture tells us, that our life should be marked with repentance. That's the life of believers. That's the life of the saints of God should be marked with repentance. Now, I want to pause here and, 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 and think a little bit about this idea of confession and repentance. Because it might seem that I'm using these two terms interchangeably, and I, I want to make a distinction because there is. Confession and repentance. The first should lead to the second. Confession should lead to repentance because confession, as we have said, is agreeing with God. It's agreeing that, that sin is sin, that what God has said in His Word is sin, that we agree with that. Conf repentance is taking that one step forward, one step farther, and turning from that sin. That, that it is not just saying, yes, I was wrong. It's saying, I was wrong, I'm sorry, and I want to change. And it seeks to go to the heart and understand. Sometimes it takes an understanding of why you've sinned and what, what deeper desires have driven you to speak in a way that is careless or to, to follow some lustful desire or to, or to the, the, whatever it is that has led us into sin. It, it, we need to look at our hearts. We need to understand what it is that's, that's driving us. James says that, that it, it starts in the heart. It starts with our desires. But repentance is more than simply confession. It is turning from sin unto God. Confession is agreeing with God and what God says about our sin. And confession should lead to repentance. If we see sin rightly as an offense against the God who made us, then we recognize that confession must first be made to God because uh, as, as we see in the psalmist uh, uh, prayer of confession in Psalm 51, he says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. But James tells us to confess to one another. And we have to wonder, well, James, what are you saying here? Well, I think the reason is, is that like mushrooms, sin grows best in the dark. Mushrooms thrive in a dark, moist environment, and sin thrives in the dark recesses of our heart. When we confess our sins and recognize them before other believers, a brother or sister in Christ, someone we trust, someone we know, someone that we know will pray for us, we bring the truth and the light of God's word onto that situation. Because Satan 
would like nothing more, saints of God, than for you to keep your sins hidden deep in your heart. And that's why I often pray, as we pray our prayers of confession, that God's light would shine into our hearts, that we would be honest with ourselves, that we would let the light of God's word affect our sins. We have some dear friends in Kansas, and and I remember a time they were walking through a very tough time with one of their children, and, and they had a son that was in rebellion, and, 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 and they, were, they were so good at thinking about the fact that, that when, when sin is exposed, it's a good thing. It's often ugly, but it's a good thing. And that's what we need. We need sin to be exposed in our own hearts and in the church as well. We need the light of God's word upon that sin. And that's really often the first step in killing sin is when it is called to the light. We're called to fight sin, to kill sin, and to seek to prevent the growth of sin in our lives. So therefore, we want to make the soil of our hearts hostile to the growth of sin. And we do that through confession. We do that by being real enough to admit where we struggle with sin James says that we should do this, that we might be healed. We'll talk more about the results under, under point two. But, but when it's rightly done, confession leads to healing, leads to repentance, and leads to reconciliation with God. Now, I'm not saying also, I'm not saying that James used the wrong word here. And what he really means is repentance, because I think repentance is implied in this. James has already given us a great treatment of the subject of repentance in chapter 4, where he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, he said, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James 4, 8 through 10. This is repentance. This is turning to the Lord. But what James is saying here is, here's the step, okay? Here is how you should function in relationship. Here is how things should look in the church. Because when you confess your sin, it should lead to that full repentance that James describes in the, next, in the previous chapter. So what I think we need to see here as we look for a definition of confession, that it's really the first step in repentance. It is agreeing with God about what God says about your heart and about your actions and about your life. Where sin is present in your life, be real enough with others to admit it and to ask them to pray for you. So then what are the results? What are the results of this action of confession that James calls us to. What, what might we hope for, as challenging and as hard as this is, in reality we have to admit that, what, is, what, is, what can we hope for? Well, certainly we can hope for clarity of conscience. Now, we shouldn't confess something just to get it off our chest, just to make ourselves feel better, because that's kind of making this about us. I've heard of, of so-called accountability groups where young men are trying to, to flee the sin of lust. And, and it's, uh, I've, you know, it, it sometimes groups such as that just become the same every week where they fall and they, they feel better because they've confessed and they've heard other people confess of, of failing in the same way. But that is not godly repentance that leads to life. We see in 2 Corinthians 7.10 that we are told for godly grief 
produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Sometimes, and I don't want to say all the time, but sometimes accountability groups can tend towards self-centered moralism and not focus enough on gospel-centered change and obedience and Christ-likeness. But spirit-led, self-denying, humble confession of sin looks to Christ for answers and employs the prayers of other believers. And this kind of confession is a relief to the conscience. We read the psalmist wrote in Psalm 32 where he talks about the agony that, agony that he felt from, from his sin and then the relief that came with repentance and confession. He said in Psalm 32, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There is a relief that comes with honest confession, with, with spirit-filled, humble confession of sin that desires obedience instead of following the ways of sin. Secondly, under the results of confession, we see growth in faith. That's the natural result of obedience to God's law, is, is to grow in your faith. If the desire of the believer is to, is to be like Christ, if it is, as Philippians 3 calls us, to abandon all things and count them as loss for the, for the prize of knowing Christ, as we heard last week from this pulpit, we should seek those things that draw us to Him. And confession of sin is one of those. We also see a result of this is, is strength in community, is, is, is growth in our relationships within the body of Christ. We, we are called to exist in community. We are a body. There's a reason why um, we're, we're called the, the body of Christ, the body of believers, the body of Christ's church. It's a, it's a metaphor that comes right from Scripture and and, and we're told, you know, the hand cannot say to the, to the foot, I don't need you because we're all, we all play a part and there's a, a, a connection to us as believers. And we're called to exist in relationships and we, we rely upon others. We need each other and we need relationships that are genuine and authentic. And we, we need to get beyond the superficial and, and be real with one another. So let me ask you, are you willing to listen to others? Are you willing to slow down and let people talk and listen with an ear tuned to how you might point your brother or sister in Christ to, to the Lord? In your conversations with believers and unbelievers alike, do you look for gospel opportunities? Now, you might be listening to me and say, you know, that's precisely the reason I don't want to talk to people is because I don't want to hear all their stuff. I don't want to get in the mess with them. But that's really kind of what we're called to do, to, to, to walk alongside, to help one another, to, 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 to receive wisdom from God's word and be able to share that with our brother or sister in Christ. But maybe you're afraid they will confess some sin to you and you won't know what to say. Well, what do you do? in that situation? What do you do when that happens? 
Well, I'm a strong believer in arrow prayers. Those, those short prayers that you just send straight up in a moment that says, Lord, please help me to know what to say right now. So pray for yourself that you'll respond biblically. Pray for your friend, maybe even in that moment. But don't be afraid to ask questions because often it's in the questions that God reveals their heart to them. What have they done or what are they doing to gain victory over their sin? How has this sin affected their lives, their other relationships? Have they talked with others? Have they confessed it to the right people? Is there an offense involved with someone else? Have they sought reconciliation? These are all things that that will help that brother or sister that might confess their sin to you to bring that sin a little more into the light. If it's a scandalous or deep-rooted sin or a long-time pattern of sin, perhaps they need to be pointed to a pastor or elder to help them. But if we're told to confess our sins to one another, there's got to be someone to listen to those sins. There's got to be someone to hear it. Will you be that one? Are you willing to be the one who listens and helps others to see how, how God's word applies to that sin, to that struggle, to the thing that they're facing in their life? Now, that makes it sound like that you have to be a walking concordance. No, it just means that you have to know Jesus and that you have to have a, a living relationship with him, an active relationship with him where, where maybe you can say, I'm not sure what to say to you in this moment, but I know Jesus cares and God's power is greater than the power of your sin. And we can pray together about this. Could we pray right now? You can say, anybody can say that. And hopefully you believe God's word that, that the gospel is real enough to you that you can take that and you can give that to someone else. Do you believe that God is at work among his people? Can you give people hope, not in themselves, not in their efforts, not even in that act of confessing, but can you find hope in Christ and in his accomplished work for his people? That's what builds strength in community. Another benefit that we can look for in this is revival. Because if you look in history, certainly revivals and a mighty outpouring of God's spirit was, was preceded by God's people in prayer. But often the next thing that is seen in those situations is confession of sin within the church, where people recognize ways in which they have not followed Christ as they should. And then you see even further outpouring of God's spirit in the lost coming to Christ. Oh, that God would grant us revival as we confess to him. And finally, another result is healing. This is really the context of this whole passage. And, and we spoke last time about whether James is talking about physical healing or is he talking about spiritual healing. And really we have to say it's both because they're, they're, they're intertwined. And when you speak of confession of sin, you have to think that, that it is because one needs spiritual healing. And if, if there is confession and repentance, there awaits forgiveness and reconciliation. And this happens after prayer. And finally, James gives us in the second half of this verse, verse 16, an imperative and an encouragement. He says, first of all, in a command to us to pray for one another. And that's certainly the context in which 
we hear confessions. It is not just so we hear something juicy about someone else. It's so that we can love them and care for them by praying for them. We're commanded to pray for one another. And I'm grateful to be among people that pray for me. But when we hear of a need, we should pray. When someone shares a need, we should pray. We should ask people how we can pray for them and then pray for them. Scripture gives us categories of people for whom we should pray. We should pray for kings and those in authority, uh, 1 Timothy tells us. And we should pray for the saints. We should pray for those more closely related to us. We should pray for the spread of the gospel. We're given example prayers in Scripture. We pray for our children, for our parents, for our siblings, for our pastors, for our elders. I'm grateful for the prayers of God's people. Please, please pray for your pastors and elders. We need God's mercy. We need God's protection. We need the power of the Spirit upon this preaching here from this pulpit. Thomas Manton said rightly that, that the living saints may be called the mediators of intercession. You, the living saints, are the mediators of intercession for God's people. And he goes on, he says, Oh, then that we would regard this neglected duty, not to pray for others as uncharitableness, not to expect it from others, is pride. Not to pray for others is uncharitableness, and not to expect it from others is pride. And finally, in the closing words of, of this verse, he gives us an encouragement that is often and rightly repeated. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I like the King James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so we, we could just look at this briefly. We need to think that of, of the fact that this prayer, it, we are called to fervency. We are called to persevere in prayer. We are called to intensity and seriousness in prayer. We are called to plead in prayer. Sometimes when, when we struggle with praying, a prayer from a saint of old can be of help to set our minds right in prayer. The Puritans would say, pray until you really pray. Uh, I heard Dr. Ligon Duncan, uh, who, who was in this pulpit last week, talk about the, the little book, The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers, and that helps him to pray until he really prays. So sometimes we need the help of saints that have, that have gone on before us to set our minds at right and to, to help us to pray. This prayer is, is to be given by a righteous person. The, the encouragement and the command to pray comes to the followers of Jesus God is certainly merciful to sinners and, and will hear their prayer when they cry, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But God it delights in answering the prayers of his children. And finally, we see in the last part of that verse is the result of prayer is that it works. Don't ask me how, but God in his sovereign plan has so ordained that his sovereign purposes are accomplished in concert with our prayers. He calls us to pray. He says, yes, I'm sovereign, but I accomplish my purposes through the prayers of God's people. That's all I can say about that. It's amazing. Do it. Join in God in accomplishing his purposes by praying for the saints of God. There are results, so pray. As we close, let me leave you with a few questions. What do you need to confess? Don't say it out loud, but just think it in your heart. What do you need to confess? Are you willing to be real? Are you willing to bring your sin into the light? 
Are you willing to spend time with others within the church and hear what they struggle with? Are you willing and eager to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're overwhelmed by sin, by your need to confess. And maybe you feel like it's too ugly and too dark and too sinful to bring into the light. But this text is for you too. Look to Jesus Christ. His blood atones for every sin of his people. And he ever lives to make intercession for you, his child. I like this short line from our Confession of Faith, chapter 15. There is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Every sin... We might excuse something we've done as, oh, that's a little sin. It doesn't matter. No, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse. But there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. And James is calling us to confess to our brothers and sisters, to one another, to bring that sin into the light so it can be forgiven. If you are here this morning and you are not God's child, I invite you to come to the family. I invite you to come to Christ, recognize, agree with God that you're a sinner, and then come to Christ in faith, repenting of that sin, turning from that sin to the glorious Savior who has paid the penalty for your sins. Come to Christ today. And it's His work that He accomplished once and for all upon the cross that we celebrate here this morning in the Lord's Supper. And I tell you, I beg you, if there's animosity in your heart to others, if there's confession that needs to be made to do it. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 tells us that if, there is, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I think this verse, these verses are talking about more than just the Lord's Supper and preparing our hearts to it, for it. But I think it's certainly not talking about less. I think that there should be an urgency in our confession. There should be an urgency in our reconciliation because we are called to live in harmony. We are called to live in love with others. So as we come to the table, let us examine ourselves, confess our sins to God, and be willing to seek the help of others within the church in our struggle and our fight against sin, let us pray.